This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Our diagnosis of the challenges of the tech sector is this encoding of values in technology, which we think is driven by an orientation towards optimization inside companies. And the choice to optimize for a particular metric. For Facebook, their mission in the world is to connect people. The metric that they optimize is time on the platform or engagement with the platform. And in what ways does that blind them to all of the other potential consequences of their technology? You know, optimization in itself isn't necessarily a good thing. It depends on what we are optimizing for. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We've been talking a lot on the show lately about the recent whistleblower testimony, documents about how Facebook has impacted individuals and our democracy. We've talked about the concerns around facial recognition technology and Mark Zuckerberg attempting to rule Facebook like it's his own nation state. I really wanted to dive into these topics and think about how big tech is operating in our democracy and in our society today and how we should be thinking about our privacy in the digital world. So I'm really excited to talk to two of the authors of System Error, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. Mehran Sahami is the James and Eleanor Cheeseborough Professor in the School of Engineering and Professor and Associate Chair of Education in the Computer Science Department at Stanford University. Prior to joining the Stanford faculty, he was a senior research scientist at Google. He was appointed by California Governor Jerry Brown to the state's Computer Science Strategic Implementation Plan Advisory Panel and is one of the inventors of email spam filtering technology. So on behalf of everyone for that, uh, thank you, Mehran. <laughs> it's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. I'm also joined by Jeremy Weinstein. He is professor of political science and leads Stanford Impact Labs at Stanford University. He joined the Obama administration in 2009 as director for development and democracy on the National Security Council staff. When Samantha Power became U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Jeremy went as her chief of staff and then as her deputy. Jeremy, thanks for making the time today. It's great to be with you. So before writing the book, uh, you both with Rob Reich, uh, designed a course on the ethics and politics of technological change that you teach at Stanford. What were you seeing on campus uh, and from Stanford graduates that made you decide to create that course? Well, so for about the past 15 years, we've seen a migration of students moving more toward engineering and computer science specifically. So enrollments had increased by about a factor of three or four. Computer science is now the largest major at Stanford, and this is a similar trend across the country. But what we're witnessing was students coming into computing, seeing the tremendous power that it had, but when they were graduating and moving on and not necessarily fully appreciating the responsibility that they took with them, with those power tools and industry. And so on full display, what we were seeing were some of the negative externalities of technology, privacy breaches, uh, the fact that the information ecosystem was being polluted with 
inf- misinformation and disinformation. We thought it was important to have an intervention on campus to really bring these issues more to the fore as part of the training that students got as part of their degrees to go out and really grapple with these things. At the same time, we realized that it's not just technologists that need to worry about these issues. They're broader. They're issues for everyone. And so the class is actually cross-listed across multiple departments because we really want to bring a multidisciplinary lens toward looking at these issues. You can't tell the story of Silicon Valley without Stanford in it, but you also can't tell the story of the rise of Stanford as one of the world's preeminent research institutions without Silicon Valley. And when I came back to Stanford in 2015 after my service in the Obama administration, the zeitgeist around technology and technology's potential was palpable in every aspect of the university's life, from the dynamics among undergraduates, the smart students went to study tech, and everyone else, if you didn't have those capabilities, you were left for all the other majors uh, in the world. Um, If you weren't getting the best internship at Google or at Facebook, you really weren't cutting it. If you didn't have a startup idea, you hadn't really fully invested in the Stanford mindset. And I think what was missing in that moment was a recognition of of the kind of fictional idealism of Silicon Valley, the idea that we could achieve dramatic world-changing social ends while getting fabulously wealthy at the same time, and no one would lose in the process. And that was the way that technology companies were selling themselves. That was a moment of extraordinary tech optimism. But the warning signs were already all around us. The sense that there were harms associated with technology, whether those harms were imposed on individuals or social harms, but everyone was walking around with blind spots. And our challenge as a sort of faculty team, bringing these three different perspectives to the table, a philosopher, a computer scientist, and a social scientist, uh, was to think about what that intervention would look like that would get people to wake up to the extraordinary power that they're able to wield through new technologies, but also to think critically about who they're designing for, who's potentially harmed, how you mitigate those harms, and the right place for us to start was Stanford, because Stanford is so central to the story of Silicon Valley. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the the difference in your backgrounds and how those different perspectives really led to a, a book that is rich with perspective. Um, and I think did for me uh, what hopefully it will do for our listeners, which is to connect a lot of different ideas and concepts and problems that we've talked about in technology and put them together in a way that's really cohesive. So what brought you together as a faculty team and how did you decide to write this book? So I'm a, I'm a social scientist. And as a social scientist, I have a mindset about trying to understand the impact of particular variables in the world on human behavior, on social behavior, what drives social problems like persistent homelessness or inequality, right? What is the role of political institutions in helping us generate economic growth or better distributional outcomes? These are the things that social scientists care about. So when I look at the world of technology, I look at it really through two perspectives. The first is, as a social scientist, I'm interested in understanding how technology changes the world that we live in, not as a hypothesis, but as an empirical matter. So when you hear people say the use of social media is harmful for young people or for young women in particular, as we see with the Facebook papers, that's not only a hypothesis, that's an empirical question. 
Does social media lead us to withdraw from the world? Does social media enable us to connect? When you hear about echo chambers and filter bubbles, the question of whether people are being exposed to less diversity of views online or more diversity of views, these are empirical questions, and social science gives us the tool to answer these questions. But the other perspective I bring to the table is as someone who's been a policymaker and who's thought about the role of political institutions. And political institutions put us squarely in the world of having to referee trade-offs, not to pick right and wrong answers the way you would in a coding assignment, but to look at competing preferences and views among citizens, among political parties, to aggregate them, and then to try and make the best decisions that we can. De democracy is the tool we have for making those decisions. And as a political scientist, but also a former policymaker, I've been at the center of those conversations. And so when I looked at the tech world and what was unfolding, I thought a key thing that's missing here is the dedication to thinking empirically and rigorously about the effects of technology, but also at the same time, the ability to marry that concern about the, the way in which we trade off benefits and harms with a, with a perspective on the political process and the role of our politics in refereeing these value trade-offs. And so the goal in joining this teaching team was to marry that perspective with the perspectives that Maron and Rob would bring. Yeah, Maron, we're going to talk a little bit later about how programmers, you mentioned, make right and wrong decisions in their coding practice. What is the perspective that you bring and what, what brought you together with, uh, with the other two authors? There was this understanding that technology is not neutral. And that's one of the things that sometimes people view technology as it's just a mechanism by which it's about the people who use it and how they wield it and the choices they make. And there is some truth in that. But at the same time, technology itself brings particular values with it. And understanding what those values are, what the trade-offs are, as Jeremy alluded to, and thinking about what's coming down the road in terms of technology. So when we think about, say, our privacy and we think about a particular technology like encryption, that puts a strong value on privacy. But at the same time, when we think about if we have an end-to-end -end messaging app, like say Signal or Facebook Messenger, and you get complete privacy when you send messages, that's great for you. That's also great for human traffickers, for child pornographers, and for terrorists. And so when you think about that value trade-off, that if you put an extreme thumb on the scale of privacy, there's other values like security that you're giving up. So you need to understand what the technology is and what it enables and what that then means from the standpoint of the value balance that, that is encoded in that technology. That's where the philosophical lens comes in. And what Rob also adds to the class is this notion of appreciating what those trade-offs are understanding their history, thinking about what gives them value. Why is privacy even a thing we should care about, yeah. right? Why is security something we should care about? And understanding how this interplay is, is mitigated by technology in different ways. And then when you bring in Jeremy's lens of social science to say, these are things we can study and understand, suddenly get a more complete picture that this isn't just about how do we think about, do we deploy a technology or not, but is about what is the larger context that it's in, whose lives are gonna be affected in what ways, and ultimately what are the societal outcomes we wanna achieve. Yeah. And when we back that all out, we need to have these different perspectives to get the complete picture. One of the things you mentioned earlier about the the and you mentioned this in the book about the culture of Silicon Valley and uh, and the and the culture of Stanford and both of those things basically coexisting. Um, in the introduction to the book, you write about Aaron Schwartz 
and how previously technologists had countercultural uh, visions of enhancing human capabilities and promoting liberty and equality and spreading democracy. But now the culture in Silicon Valley is centered on founder worship and the celebration of apolitical coders, uh, as you put it. Can you help us understand that shift, Jeremy? One of the anecdotes we begin with is, is in addition to the story of Aaron Swartz, who represents this countercultural orientation, the liberatory potential of tech. Um, we also talk about another Stanford dropout, Joshua Browder, um, who started uh, a startup while still an undergraduate at Stanford in his freshman year called Do Not Pay. And Do Not Pay, uh, as, as a company that received backing from high-profile VCs throughout Silicon Valley, was founded on this pain point. The pain point being that uh, individuals have to pay parking tickets uh, when they park illegally. And for Josh Browder, this is an outrage. It's an outrage. It's an exercise of power uh, by institutions of government that in some way impinge on people's liberty. And what he wanted to do was create a mechanism, an automated mechanism for people to get out of paying parking tickets. And you know, we've gotten to know Joshua Browder. We interviewed him in the context of building a set of profiles for our class. And we asked him questions about why parking tickets exist, right? What, what role they serve in society? Do we need mechanisms for ensuring that spaces for the disabled remain spaces for the disabled? Or that when you need all cars to park on one side of the street so that street cleaners can go by, that's actually possible? Or if you actually want to reduce congestion in major urban areas, does it make sense to limit the number of parking spaces that are available in order, if you're the city of London, to reduce congestion but also emissions? Those social values were just invisible, right, in the mm -hmm. conversation that we had with Joshua Browder. It was only through the lens of the individual pain point and the ability of technology to unlock for individuals their capability to work around these corrupt and broken institutions uh, that we call government. Well, we look at it really differently because government, in fact, is the one mechanism that we have that helps us achieve social ends as opposed to individual and private ends. So what happened? What happened to the liberatory culture? Um, well, we should ask Maron to speak to his own experience in the technology industry, but I think part of the story really begins with the incredible potential of these technologies to transform everything about the way we live, the capital that went into scaling these technologies, and the potential for financial returns to be achieved that were far grander and greater than anyone could have ever anticipated. And so what began as a cult of technologists who saw themselves in opposition to capitalism or in opposition um, you know, uh, to government but really free of any constraints, right? Liberatory, hackers, coders in the basement. Of cyberpunks. Course, of cyberpunks. Of course, we know government was investing in the underlying infrastructures that they were building, um, became a corporate structure for taking new and transformative products and scaling them to billions of people around the world overnight, over months, over years. Um, and then monetizing that mm -hmm. and turning that into something that generated both for the individuals in these companies, but also um, for the investors in them, just rewards that were even larger than they could ever have possibly imagined. Yeah. Miron, how do you see the same shift? Right. So Aaron Schwartz was actually a student of mine, and mm. he had this view on the world as to why are things the way they are. 
And I think one of the values he really embodied was, could technology be harnessed more for the benefit of society, people at large, rather than privatizing the benefits that the technology brings? But I think that's a powerful force. There's a lot of people who realize that in technology, there are gains to be made. And those gains are often privatized, and there's a particular value balance you see there. So when you see apps for the gig economy, for example, that transfer the power of who controls who is getting a ride with a particular application, um, what you find is that the people who are the workers who are providing that labor are treated as contractors. They're not treated as employees. So what happens for benefits that they would get? That cost becomes socialized. But when the company stock takes off, who gets the benefit of that? That's privatized to the people who are the engineers in the company, the executives of the company. And that kind of financial incentive is a pretty powerful force. So what you see is a balance shifting that as the power of technology to be a strong force in business and generate great returns is something that's more and more appreciated and then becomes funded by the venture capital community that's looking for these outsized returns. You get this shift from technology as a liberatory source to being a source of wealth generation. Now, that doesn't mean everyone goes down that path, right? There are other people right. like Aaron in the world, yeah. but there are just fewer of them. Yeah. And we didn't mention, I should mention for our listeners, that Aaron committed suicide. Um, he did. Uh, how has the prevalence then of venture capitalism in Silicon Valley um, especially the push to find a unicorn. Maybe you can talk a little bit about you know, what a unicorn is uh, and, and stomp out competition, um, molded the path away from uh, the early tech visionaries to where we sit today. And I, I assume you only see that trend continuing. Absolutely. The way that companies get funded now, you know, if you look back to the origins of Silicon Valley, there was a lot more government funding, some from the defense sector, but really uh, the birth of the internet was funded through public money. Now, fast forward, and what you find is that there's billions of dollars on Sand Hill Road just up the street from where we're talking now that's looking to fund the next unicorn, which is a company valued at a billion dollars or more. The idea there is that if you can find the right group of people who are building the next great technology and you fund them early on and you can get them to scale that technology quickly so you get lots of users, they get outsized returns. Mm. Oftentimes in uh, two-sided markets on the internet, there's monopolistic effects. And, and maybe a great example, you know, we talk a little bit about in the book is if you ask someone, what's the number one online auction site? Yeah. Most people can come up with an answer. They probably say eBay. Yep. You ask them what's number two, most people don't have an answer, right? And that gives you a pretty clear indication of the sellers want to go to the place where there's the most buyers, buyers want to go to the place where there's the most sellers, and becoming that number one player, the person who scales the quickest, is the first mover, mm. has outsized financial advantage. That's what venture capitalists would like to see. And so what that means is it creates this relentless push towards scaling. Sometimes mm. it's referred to as blitz scaling. Mm. And that's great if you want to have a company go grow quickly. It's not so great if you want to leave time for reflection about what are the values that are encoded in that technology, what are the outcomes, what are the social costs, if you actually want to study these things, as Jeremy alluded to. 
So what we get is a dynamic that pushes towards scale, and that means other things we might care about fall by the wayside. The values that are encoded in this technology is a really great way to think about this. And I mean, it gets to the title of the book, right? System error, but um, but but it's not. It's a counterintuitive notion to most people that, that the technology that they have in their hand and their devices, the apps they use every day, have some kind of moral valence to them. Um, there's a vignette in the book. Uh, where Rob went to a dinner and they were talking about creating a state designed, like an actual state, nation state, uh, designed to maximize science and tech progress. And they assumed that they need a technocrat to run things. It was sort of just a, uh, a given um, that it would be a technocracy. They'd need a single person to run it um, because democracy works too slowly. Democracy is slow and it's messy as we know it is not move fast and break things it is it's move slow and gain consensus or at least gain a majority um and we've seen that play out over and over again on capitol hill everyone will be familiar with you know recent negotiations um jeremy how should we be thinking about this constant push for optimization um especially within a democracy so it begins with recognizing that democracy is not a tool for achieving optimal outcomes, right? So, you know, part of the diagnosis, our diagnosis of the challenges of, of the tech sector is, is what Maron described about venture capitalists, but also this encoding of values in technology, which we think is driven by an orientation towards optimization inside companies. And the choice to optimize for a particular metric Right? For Facebook, their mission in the world is to connect people. The metric that they optimize is time on the platform or engagement with the platform. And in what ways does that blind them to all of the other potential consequences of their technology? Uh, you know, Optimization in itself isn't necessarily a good thing. It depends on what we are optimizing for. And, and where politics comes into the equation or democracy is that in a world like the one that Maron described, where you have Signal or WhatsApp that puts their thumb on the scale for privacy, end-to-end -end encryption, if there are other values being traded off, in this case, security, our ability to provide safety for children, for Americans who are concerned about the threat of terrorism, where do you want those value trade-offs refereed? And in many ways over the last 25 years, or more years, we've left the refereeing of those value trade-offs to the technologists. And how is that playing out for all of us? Well, the answer is not so well, right? Because we're experiencing all of these social harms because none of the incentives exist inside companies to value these trade-offs in a way that they might be valued socially. So what do you do then? Well, you know, a political scientist and a political theorist are part of this team. And we say, we've got a technology for that. It's called democracy. Right? And democracy is a technology thousands of years old that is fundamentally about not producing an optimal outcome, but producing an outcome that's the result of an intentional and deliberative process of engagement among people who have different and competing perspectives on the way that we want to live together. And so when people criticize regulation, and we're sitting in a part of the country where regulation has a terrible name, when people criticize regulation, what they are in effect criticizing is the role of our democratic institutions in helping us to referee these value trade-offs. You know, when I'm talking to undergraduates about regulation and they bemoan and disparage the role of government, I ask them, you know, where were your clothes made? 
do you have itchy skin today as a result of the clothes that you wear? And they say, no, my clothes were made abroad, but my skin is great. It's clean. Why is that the case? Did you drink milk this morning? And did you get sick when you drank the milk? No, you didn't get sick. Do you think the market is producing all of these outcomes for you optimally? No, of course, they're a set of regulatory guardrails. And that's our democratic institutions at work. And the fact that they are slow and deliberative is a good thing, not a bad thing, because actually achieving consensus about the ways in which we want to live together, not moving quickly just to disrupt and break things, but helping us to articulate the values that we want and decide on how we're going to amplify the benefits of a new technology while also mitigating the harms is, is a responsible way of approaching these dramatic transformations that are happening all around us. And we contrast that with the move fast and break things mentality, right? Where ultimately rolling out the values of technologists at scale as embedded in the platforms generates, if it's a social media platform, extraordinary volumes of toxic hate, right? And hate speech online, misinformation and disinformation that undermines our efforts to counter a global pandemic or to hold a free and fair election. These are the things that are generated when we're not careful and deliberate about thinking about the values that are at stake. So I'm sitting here nodding enthusiastically, and I'm wondering if, as you talk about these things in your classroom, if light bulbs do start to go on for some of your students who might not otherwise have seen themselves as particularly engaged in the democratic process or particularly engaged in politics. And one of the things that, you know, I've one example I've used is, does water come out of your pipes in the morning? Do you take a shower? And did you like that your water was clean? And the answer to the question is yes, then you're engaged in politics at some level. And so I wonder if when you talk about these things with your students, do they they start to get it? Does it click? Or are you still meeting lots of resistance uh, to those So I think light bulbs go off. There's no doubt that light bulbs go off and that part of this cultural intervention that we've brought about at Stanford has given people license to own up to the fact that they actually care about the harms that are visible. And they don't need to bury the fact that they care about these harms, that they can actually own that they care about them and think about whether there's a place for them in technology in addressing these harms or outside of technology. But it's also the case that they live in a world that all of us live in, which is we look at Washington, D.C. for us 3,000 miles away and we see paralysis, we see polarization, we see dysfunction. They look at government and they don't see pathways into government for people with technical talent and expertise. They don't see pathways to leadership that don't involve waiting 35 years until you're in on the decision-making when it comes to policy. They look at elected politicians and they say, that's a fundraising job. That's not a place to actually do anything substantive. You spend 95% plus of your time raising money to put yourself in office. And so if you have the option, if you have these extraordinary tools of the 21st century, where you can code in your pajamas in your bedroom and it gets rolled out tomorrow and affects the lives of 5 billion people, or you can go engage in this thousands-year-old exercise of democratic deliberation and hope that in a five-year period you produce one piece of legislation that passes, this is the kind of trade-off. And I didn't even say anything about salaries, right? So if you add salaries on top of that and recognize that we don't remunerate people who serve the public interest in any way that's consistent with the important role that they occupy in society, you can understand why our students are confused. They care about the public interest. They want to be empowered to think about the public interest, but they feel that the trade-offs are extraordinary. And that's why part of our book is 
is about the need to build a democracy that's capable of governing technology. And that means admitting that we don't have one now and structural change is needed. And you're not going to get that through tech policy legislation. You're going to get that through thinking seriously about what doesn't work in our political institutions. I would even add to that, uh, in addition to remuneration, right? There used to be, there used to be a certain social cachet that came with working in government, with being a public servant, a civil servant. If you worked on the staff of a legislator or you worked on Capitol Hill, there was there was a certain, even though you weren't getting paid beans, right? There was still. Um, uh, some social capital that came with that because you were contributing, you were serving, right? We don't even have that anymore. It's gone. Um, Mehran, as someone who has been in a big tech company, can you help us think about why there's a move to optimize? What that word, like the role of that word, that idea optimization in big tech and and how engineers and how programmers could take a step back and think about what they should be optimizing for at all in the first place. Um, and 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 whether they should be optimizing at all. Well, optimization is a particular mindset that permeates engineering and especially computer science. It's the notion that you want to have some value that you're improving over time. And that notion is permeated into the business world through things sometimes called key performance indicators or objectives and key results. It's a you know innocuous notion of how do you want to measure how your business is doing. You want to have some measures to see what's happening, and then you want to try to improve those measures over time. The problem with that, though, is that oftentimes those measures, to make them easy to measure, diverge a bit from what the stated mission is that a company wants to achieve. So if we were to talk about Facebook, their mission is to connect the world. Well, how do you measure connecting the world? The way they measure it are things like how much time people spend on their platform, how many users you have, how much people click on a piece of content or click on an ad. But people could click on a piece of content or an ad because it infuriates them, mm -hmm. because it's upsetting, because or, it's titillating. Because they gave the angry emoji five times more algorithmic weight than the like button. Exactly. <laughs> but if that's the thing you want to optimize, it means essentially what you're doing is getting more people to click on the angry emoji. And then you wonder why we get polarization. But the fact is that the more people are clicking, the more opportunities there are, for example, for showing ads. And that means more revenue generation. And so this notion of optimizing oh, at scale begins to diverge more and more from really what the mission that the company wants to achieve is. And part of that problem is that at some point for the engineers and the business executives that are fixated on these metrics, they lose sight of what the larger notion is. They internalize the fact that click-through rate is now connecting people. And so when that becomes the thing you're constantly driving, it's obvious why we get the externalities we do. It's obvious why when people look at something like the Facebook files, you can say, okay, some of these trade-offs, even if they were aware of them, weren't really made the right way because some of the things that are really being measured and valued are the things that are being optimized for in the long term. And how you value them and the things you choose to optimize become critical. Mm. So maybe to give you one example to drill down on, yeah. One of the things from the Facebook files, there's a slide in there that talks about the effect of Instagram on teens. And mm -hmm. so they interviewed or, or uh, surveyed a bunch of teens. And what they found is that one in five on average felt worse about themselves as a result of engaging with Instagram and two in five felt better. And so if you look at that at just a simple trade-off and you say, well, two in five felt better, one in five felt worse, maybe it's not so bad. We should keep doing the same thing. Unless you take a step back and you think about what does it mean for someone to feel worse? 
right? If the outcome there is someone becomes suicidal, that is not something that has the same effect as someone feeling a little bit better about their life. Those are not commensurate things to, to trade off. And so when you take the broader picture that it's not just putting these numbers together in this metric, but people's lives and the degree of impact that you're actually having, that's what brings up the notion that we need to think more critically about what we're optimizing or whether or not we want to be optimizing at all. And the current default state is that the the people making these decisions on what to optimize for really aren't equipped with the the knowledge or the skills for how to weigh those questions. Is that right? Right. That's the place where we actually need people coming in from places like sociology to understand what is the effect on people that they're actually having, psychology to be able to really be deliberate, to run studies, to look at degree of impact. That's the place where you can begin to understand what are the real outcomes we're achieving, not just looking at a couple numbers and saying one is larger than the other. You know, we have a we have a particular lens into into how these issues exist in tech because in addition to teaching undergraduates about 3 years ago we started teaching this course at night for professional technologists we put out word that we were going to be doing this in San Francisco in partnership with a venture capital fund Bloomberg Beta we got hundreds of students professional technologists who wanted to spend their evening with us that's a great idea they were idea. diligent readers of of anything we put on the syllabus you know, the most enthusiastic students, you can remember what it's like to have the opportunity to go back to college when you're really ready to learn. Um, but one of the things that we found in talking to these young professional technologists um, is that we'd often confront them with the value trade-offs that were embedded in a particular technological frontier. And we'd say, whose decision is it to make about what the appropriate definition of fairness is in this algorithmic decision-making tool? or how should we decide how much privacy to preserve for the user in this context? Or how should we tune the recommendation algorithm in the newsfeed uh, to balance the revenue generation goals of the company against the potential harms related to the spread of, of, of misinformation? So we, we confront them with these dilemmas. And typically, the first answer from these technologists was, it's not my decision to make. And so we'd say, well, okay, if it's not your decision, like whose decision is it? Well, I don't know. No, that's not good enough. Like who 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 should be making <laughs> You're this the one decision? With the keyboard. <laughs> right? Who should be making this decision? Well, well, I'd probably call the general counsel's office, right? Which is a kind of compliance orientation, which takes us to the lowest common denominator. The general counsel's orientation is just to figure out what's legal. Is it legal for you to do anything that you want? Right? Or as we saw with the Facebook files these decisions just get pushed up, right? There's no ethic of responsibility that, that seeps all the way down into the design process or the product building process. But as we saw with Facebook, you had an engineering channel, a product building channel, right? That was primarily focused on growth. You had these research teams that brought in the psychologists, the sociologists, the economists, the political scientists who were looking at harms. All of these things would bubble up somewhere to the top, to close to the top, and then someone would make a choice. And those are only the trade-offs that we observe because they got released in the Facebook files, right? But what about all the trade-offs that we don't even observe? And I think our view and the reason that we're doing the teaching of young technologists and professional technologists is that we are not going to find our way out of this set of dilemmas, this system error, 
until we have an ethic of responsibility that seeps in through tech in the same way that we've got in medicine, in the same way that we've got in law. Yeah, I was just going to say we you know the tech industry doesn't have its equivalent of the Hippocratic oath where there isn't a system-wide foundational ethic against which these decisions can be made. When they get bubbled up, someone's someone's going to make a decision somewhere, but there isn't a foundational principle upon which they're going to that that everyone agrees should be the foundational principle that that they're going to use to make that decision. And that's what you're arguing for. And of course the Hippocratic oath just scratches the surface right. of what the maturation of medicine and yeah. the life sciences have experienced, right? The Hippocratic Oath is is very old, right? As a principle that that undergirds, you know, the treatment of, old, of human as old beings, as Hippocrates, right? <laughs> yeah. But of course, we've built on top of that that the transformation of medicine into a professionally oriented scientific enterprise involved the creation of the FDA, involved the creation of institutional review boards to protect human subjects, involved the creation of licensing as a way of determining who was ready to ply the trade of medicine. Uh, these were things that happened in recent memory, not thousands of years ago or even hundreds of years ago, but over the last 150 years. So think of computer science, a relatively new field, as being entirely in its infancy and recognize the limits of bland commitments to do no harm or AI should be used to achieve social benefits, leaving undefined what is a social benefit, leaving undefined questions of what consequences should exist when people do harm with particular technologies. Again, these are all questions of politics. These are not questions that can be refereed uh, or figured out inside companies alone. But we need to begin this conversation among technologists because technologists yield, wield extraordinary power we know the slow and deliberate pace of our political institutions. And so in the same way that we saw in the life sciences and bioengineering with the creation of gene editing technologies, long before government was ready to get in the game, there was a social norm that you don't use these technologies to gene edit human beings. And when a Chinese scientist violated those social norms, that Chinese scientist was banished from the profession right? Ultimately arrested in China, but even before the arrest, banished from the profession. And that kind of creation of a set of social norms is going to be one of the key pieces of getting our hands around this problem. I mean, there's also this, uh, there are groups of um, <laughs> uh, vigilante biohackers now who are experimenting with that technology on their own, completely unregulated and unsupervised, and uh, uh, just as another example. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about facial recognition software, and we were talking about how we're really wary of government having lots of our private data. And it, this is really healthy skepticism vis-a-vis -vis a people's relationship with its government. But as consumers, we sign away our data to private companies all the time, every day, multiple times a day. What do you think drives that difference? Um, uh, and should it? And how should we be thinking about who we allow to see and use and sell our data? And I don't know who wants to take that first because there's. I want to hear from both of you on this. Miran, maybe, maybe I'll take a yeah. first crack at it. Um, I think in technology, there's for a long time been a libertarian ethos where the idea is that technology companies will produce products and then people have a choice whether to use those products or not. 
So in the United States, we think about that notion as what's referred to as uh, notify and choice or notice and consent. And the basic idea is we give you the the end user license agreement, right? 35 pages of stuff you're not going to read. You click OK because you really want to look at those dog pictures. And, you know, you're off to the races, but now all of that data is being collected about you. Um, and you contrast that with, say, the European Union, which has the General Data Protection Regulation, which comes from the standpoint of believing that data privacy is a right and that individual has, individuals have rights over their data that have to be respected across all companies that want to gather data. And so in that dichotomy, people oftentimes like to think of Europe regulates and the United States innovates. And mm. it's just a false dichotomy. Mm. You can have lots of innovation in the same place as regulation. But this libertarian framework in the United States gives us this choice that says, either you use the app or you don't use the app. Now, to consider that analogy, imagine in the early days of driving, if someone were to say, you have a car, you can either drive or not drive. And if you drive, be safe because it's dangerous out there. And there's no regulation around it, right? So people are driving wherever they want. And in the early days, this is what happened. People <laughs> got did. killed. Yeah. <laughs> it was not a fun time yeah. being a driver. So what did we do? We created roadways and lanes. He said, you drive on a particular side of the road. We're going to have traffic lights. So you stop at intersections. We're going to put speed bumps by schools. We created a system that created safety for everyone driving. Now, within that system, you still have a choice to drive or not. So we didn't take away your liberty, but we said... Let's make it safer for everyone. That's where we need to get to with technology. What we need are particular rights that provide these safeguards for things like people's privacy, gives them an opportunity to have greater agency. They can still have choice within that system. So we're not taking that away, but everyone's better off, except maybe the tech companies. How do you think about that tension between uh, how we think about government uh, having our data and, and private tech companies having our data? I so appreciate you asking this question because it's one of the things that really puzzled me when I came back from government and began to think about how I was going to engage in this emerging conversation around tech. Because, you know, when I would see, especially in the aftermath of the Snowden disclosures, all of this concern about government access to data and government violations of privacy, um, yet no concern about the reading of everyone's Gmail account that's happening automatically to help optimize the provision of services to people or the selling of people's data to third parties even outside of their awareness. I really couldn't understand that disconnect because what I knew as someone who'd been involved in, in, in sort of international relations and, and public policy for a long time is that the government operates under extraordinary constraints with the use of access, you know, with, with its ability to access personal data. That, that when it comes to issues of national security or or even criminal prosecution and investigation, the courts exercise oversight over the government's ability to access your personal data, that you have to present a credible case for why you should be able to violate privacy rights. Or we think about our health information and the role of HIPAA or our education information and the role of FERPA, two major pieces of legislation that, that impose enormous limits on the way in which people's personal information can be shared. And all of that is justified. That is, we live in a society, not only in the United States, but also globally, where governments have misused their ability to access people's personal information. And so those constraints are meaningful. But contrast those constraints with the Wild West on the West Coast of the United States, the lack of any constraints 
beyond this basic libertarian notice and consent framework that puts us in a position where in exchange for using a product, companies can, in their terms of service, do pretty much everything they want. And perhaps the most galling thing about our agreement or consent to that architecture is that it embeds a profound power asymmetry between the companies and potential users that is so insurmountable for the individual. That is, you have to read those 35 pages that are written in a language that you can't understand. You have to get your head around what potential end uses they're thinking about for your data. You have to imagine all the other potential end uses of the data that they haven't enumerated, but they've reserved the right in the legalese to use it for anything else that they come up with, right? And then you have to go through the exercise of figuring out how to manipulate the underlying settings in the product um, if you're going to still use it, but you want to protect your own privacy. That's a power asymmetry. That, that tilts the scales in the direction of whatever it is that companies want to do. And of course, our politicians have enabled that to happen. You can point the finger at the tech companies and say, how dare they violate our privacy? But everything they're doing is permitted, right? Or the vast majority of it is permitted. What isn't being permitted if it's discovered is policed, but most of it is permitted. So how did we end up in a world where Americans feel comfortable or feel uncomfortable with government accessing their data when government has enormous oversight and constraints, but feel massively comfortable with the private sector accessing their data when they have no visibility into how it's going to be used. And I think the power asymmetry is an important part of it, that people don't really understand the potential end uses. I also think we've spent 30 plus years in the United States sowing distrust in our public institutions uh, and the people who work in them and lifting up our private sector institutions as those that are the drivers of innovation and people who can't do any wrong. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Part two of this conversation will be out next week. System Error is available now, and you can find it at the link in today's show notes. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.